Hi, everyone. So, maintenance and repair are really foundational to human, social, and material life. Cleaning, caring, preserving, prolonging, these are all things we do to keep our worlds going. But in the digital age, repairing our everyday technologies is becoming more difficult. And in today's talk, I'm just going to begin to explore some reasons why. How is the organization of the tech industry putting up barriers to maintenance and repair? And what are technicians and activists all around the world doing about it? So technology has long been a site for future visioning. Storytelling about technology really matters because it helps to set the conditions of possibility, what's desirable and what's valuable. And as the journalist Michael Lewis tells us, the predominant Silicon Valley story is about the new, new thing. In our culture, the most dominant stories are about innovation. That's the most culturally and financially valuable form of action. It's brought to you by the geniuses and, of course, the upstarts, because increasingly it's disruption that's even the most um, valuable form of innovation, where old orders are cast aside, and that's how value is created. But maintenance and repair don't normally feature in these stories, even though they're inevitable dimensions of how we live with technology. They're too messy, maybe too low status, seen as something that happens after design has done the more important work, mere technical concerns. But for me, that's simply not the case. Connecting, patching, working around, these are the ways that technology gets uniquely configured within our lives and our societies. And to me, it's no coincidence that maintenance is rising up the agenda as we confront our planetary limits, because maintenance and repair offers us both practical and philosophical resources to think through these new challenges. We can make an impact, actually, by consuming less and making our stuff last longer. But maintenance and repair also provide powerful lenses for viewing the world. What orders do we want to maintain? What do we want to hold on to? What do we want to value? And by orders, I mean social and material practices, economic arrangements, institutional forms. And conversely, what orders do we want to let go of? What do we want to obsolesce or to unmake? So in today's talk, I want to um, quickly run through three barriers to maintenance and repair that have come up in my work. Firstly, in the mobile phone repair shops of downtown Kampala, and secondly, in my studies of repair policy in the US and the EU. So in Uganda, over the last 15 years, a new mobile infrastructure has been rolled out. And I wanted to study the new businesses that were coming up to take care of the handsets themselves. Um, and that's one way of telling a different type of story about this new, new thing, but one that really made breakdown and, and repair more visible. So I spent time in workshops like Chiranda's that you can see here, um, and technicians in Kampala, which is Uganda's capital city, they're overwhelmingly working for themselves, often individually or maybe with an assistant or an apprentice. And at that time, I could only find two manufacturer-authorized workshops in the city. Everyone else was working independently. Oops. 
So being able to fix requires information and tools. You need a good general understanding of hardware and software systems, and you also need specific information about devices. Hardware tools like soldering irons, they're really easy to come across, but software tools are made by manufacturers and they're also controlled by them. So although it can be easy to get hold of a soldering iron, it can be quite difficult to get hold of um, a piece of software repair um, diagnostic tools. So Manufacturer-authorized workshops have easy access to these tools and resources, but what happens when you're a technician in Kampala like Chiranda, working outside authorized networks, far from sites of design, and actually informally in ways that are not really legible to corporations? So this is the first barrier that I want to pull out, the kinds of asymmetries of information and access between authorized versus independent workshops. So what do independent technicians in Kampala do to get phones working again? Well, they improvise alternative infrastructures. And let's start by talking about the software tools. Um, accessing the embedded systems onboard devices for software repair means using these third-party repair tools that technicians called hacker tools. And this is one technician's collection um, used for feature phones. And you can see this tool in action. Here you've got a stripped-down feature phone connected to the hardware interface, and on screen the corresponding software system lets technicians um, circumvent onboard security systems, access embedded systems, and rewrite firmware to replace a corrupted version with, with a new functioning one. But these tools are actually incredibly unstable because rival developer teams would hack and crack each other's tools. So this photo was made by a technician online pleading with two rival teams to set aside their long-running dispute. So independent technicians working outside of authorized networks have to kind of navigate, not only just to purchase a tool and then use it, but to kind of navigate the social worlds of these developers. And let's talk about how technicians access information. Well, they use knowledge artifacts like the Nokia hardware library by Black Attack shown here. And this was created by technicians for technicians. It's a flash file that you open. You choose the model and the uh, part that's broken down to bring up these incredible visual notations. And this one is a diagram that shows how to loop, which is a technique where Technicians use very fine copper wire to circumvent a broken part, especially if there's not a spare available. And you might be able to tell that this is crowdsourced. You can see it's been made by Archit Raj and uploaded to Black Attack servers to be aggregated into this artifact. So what I want to highlight is that independent technicians are intervening in this asymmetry of information and access Firstly, by participating in the tumultuous world of third-party developers um, and their hacker tools, but also in sharing these new knowledge artifacts, and they're made via commons-based peer production. So what interests me is that this isn't an attempt to recreate design or engineering knowledge. Rather, here, experiences of craft um, and techniques sort of layer up on top of traditional engineering forms like schematics, augmenting them and also subverting them. 
So this form of knowledge production is about sharing the more diffuse ways of knowing devices through breakdown, through uncertainty, through error and obsolescence. So it was really discovering that asymmetry that led me on to a second strand of research on repair policy in the US and the EU, because I wanted to understand more about these dynamics of agency and control between manufacturers, technicians and users. And this work was done in collaboration with Steve Jackson at Cornell. So when we looked at consumer technologies, we found plenty of examples of design choices that frustrate maintenance and repair. Really obvious examples like pentalobe tamper-resistant screws. And they remind us that for um, manufacturers, removing the cover or the housing of a device might not be maintaining, but something a bit more sinister. And these warranty void stickers, these are likely to be illegal in the US under the Magnuson Moss Warranty Act, because they imply that users must use the warranty services rather than choosing freely from the market. And of course, manufacturers want to offer really good service to their customers through these authorized networks. But when does that tip over into something a bit more monopolistic? Do these screws and the stickers help to make repair unthinkable outside of these particular channels? So finally, barriers also appear when these design decisions meet intellectual property regimes. And this really matters for our Internet of Things future, because getting an electrical device networked means opening it up to two new forms of, of intellectual property protection. First of all, software code is copyrighted, which is absolutely fine and fair, but it also um, means that technicians and users can be excluded. Um, and perhaps more worryingly, because software is licensed rather than sold, um, manufacturers can use end-user licensing agreements really to control what you do with your uh, stuff, even when you've brought it home and integrated it into your system. Um, and when IoT devices remain tethered via the internet to their manufacturers, combined with these overly broad EULAs, these end-user licensing agreements, these can really turn lethal um, as software updates can be um, put through, perhaps we can say, without people's informed consent, because I know I don't think I've ever read the fine print of a EULA ever. Um, but in this case, Nest, the smart home company, bought their competitor Revolve, and less than two years later, they remotely bricked Revolve's flagship product, their home hub. So this wasn't a case where they just stopped providing support. They actually stopped the device working entirely. And customers whose homes stopped working were only offered a refund after a ton of negative press coverage like this one in The Guardian. So when we start to explore the barriers of maintenance and repair, we also see some quite important limitations in our role as consumers. Um, what happens when people can't tinker, improvise, or fix? Well, we can't kind of... Um, appropriate things into our own personal networks. Um, but this point about digital literacy also takes on a kind of societal um, troubling notion as we think about our shared social imaginaries around technology. If we don't understand how our things work, 
because they're so locked down, then we really can't participate in the kind of visioning projects that I, I talked about in the introduction. You know, do we really feel that we have a stake in the kinds of digital transformations that are changing our societies? So we've explored the rights that manufacturers have to control their innovations, but where does the balance lie? Should consumers have the right to repair their digital things? So this is what a growing movement of activists is calling for. And the right to repair campaign is led in the US by the Repair Association. And that's a coalition of repair businesses, civil society and consumer groups. And they've been very effective at pushing back against the US's overly broad copyright legislation and gaining exemptions for people to do repair. Um, but they're also trying to implement new laws at state level. And although legislation has been debated in 20 states, nothing has passed quite yet, though Elizabeth Warren, the Democratic hopeful, has endorsed the campaign. So a right to repair law would guarantee independent technicians and users access to the manuals, the schematics, and the diagnostic tools um, that we've been talking about to be able to fix their devices and also a supply of spare parts for a fixed number of years. So in Europe, European repair and consumer organizations have also been joining the campaign. Here that means reforming existing laws like the Eco-Design Directive, and there was a significant package of new measures voted in this year that are going to make some categories of home appliances more repairable by design, making it easier to access key components, making spare parts um, available for a certain length of time, and making manuals um, mandatory for repair professionals only, not yet users. So in summary, we're living on a damaged planet and we really need to put in place a planetary fix. If we're going to have any hope of meeting our climate change commitments, we really have to find new ways of consuming beyond upgrading to the new, new thing all the time. And we've got important visions in this space, like the circular economy, but we're still working out what that looks like in practice, ranging from kind of better recycling all the way to widespread systems change. And for inspiration, I think we can look to the mobile phone repair cultures of downtown Kampala. Independent workshops are doing this repair by any means necessary, really materially frugal work. This careful work is really sustainability in action as technicians are extending product lifetimes and they're doing it in a way where they're pooling and sharing their knowledge. But if we're thinking about systems change, then the language of rights, I think, is also really productive. It productively shifts accountabilities for repair and helps us to open up new questions. If we gain new rights to repair, does this also mean we have new responsibilities to repair? We urgently need to craft new ethical and moral relations to the digital things in our lives so that in this era of planetary precariousness, we can shift from one world order to a time, up to the next, humbly and each fix at a time.